0: Welcome to today's message, Love Doesn't Shirk the Dirty Work. First section, if you think you know it all, jump. Pride can trip us up and get in the way of showing love to others. We may tend to put ourselves first rather than giving preference to others. Jesus models for us a new standard. Even though he was the very son of God, he lowered himself in many ways to the status of a servant in order to help us because he loved us and knew our need. Each of us probably has areas of strength. We may be good at a few things because our gifts are all different. I particularly enjoy geeky things like computers and software and spreadsheets. In some ways I know just enough to be dangerous, but it's fun to be able to help people with technological problems. A few times lately, even during lockdown, I've been called on to use remote access to go on someone's computer and help them sort something out. If I'm not careful, that could become an area of undue pride, thinking I'm better than other people. But the Bible warns us, pride goes before a fall. King James Version, Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. A pastor, a boy scout, and a computer expert were the only passengers on a small plane. The pilot came back to the cabin and announced that the plane was going down, but there are only three parachutes and four people. The pilot added, I should have one of the parachutes because I have a wife and three small children. So he took one and jumped. The computer whiz said, I should have one of the parachutes because I am the smartest man in the world and everyone needs me. So he grabbed a pack and jumped. The pastor turned to the boy scout and with a sad smile said, you are young and I have lived a rich life, so you take the remaining parachute and I'll go down at the plane. The Boy Scout replied, Relax, Reverend, the smartest man in the world just picked up my knapsack and jumped out. In today's reading, we find that pride plagued Jesus' disciples, preventing them from showing care for others. Jesus helped Peter work through this and push past his own privilege to demonstrate how real love doesn't shirk even the dirty work. Next section. Limited time, love to the limit. What would you do if you knew you had a limited time, amount of time to live? Actually, come to think of it, that's true for all of us. We just don't know how many days or weeks or years we have left. What if you contracted COVID-19 so bad it became apparent you weren't going to make it? How would you put your affairs in order? Who would you most want contact with? One of my favorite Christian apologists offering a defense for the faith is Rabbi Zacharias. Just this month he received bad news that the sarcoma in his spine had metastasized and was so aggressive that medical treatment was no longer an option. So he was being discharged from the hospital to go home to Atlanta and spend his remaining days with his family. Note he didn't start planning one more university debate or church-speaking engagement. He's choosing to spend the time he's got left with those he loves most, his immediate family. Sarah Davis, Ravi's daughter and CEO of the ministry that bears his name, added in the announcement of the sad news, We know that God has purposed and numbered each of our days, and only he knows how many more Ravi will experience on this earth. While we are full of so many emotions we are also at peace, resting in the truth that God knows all and sees all and is sovereign and good. I think of the great joy my dad will have, and I am comforted. Even in the season of his earthly departure, Rowdy's faith is bearing witness to his Christian hope. The last time I was preaching, we looked at John 12, just about a week before the Passover, which Jesus would be betrayed and crucified. He was already very conscious of his approaching death, noting in 12.23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. By the time we get to John 13, the clock has ticked further. It's just before the Passover feast, John tells us. How will Christ choose to spend his quickly passing final hours on earth, perform some Great, dramatic, unforgettable public miracles? Challenge the religious leaders and cleanse the temple completely of corrupt religion? Call on legions of angels to chuck out the occupying pagan Roman army? No. Like Ravi going home to his family, Jesus holds up privately with his closest disciples, making it a priority to love them and teach them and impress upon them the core truths he wants them to remember. John 13.1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. You're the priority on loving here? Jesus loves his own in the world. That includes you if you've committed your life to him and received him in your life. It's deep in God's nature to love those who are his. Psalm eighty six fifteen b The Lord God is abounding in love and faithfulness. Not many hours later Jesus would be demonstrating his love for his own by living out Romans five a But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there are lots of ways to show love, and while Jesus was still alive in his earthly unglorified form, he chose another way to demonstrate his love for his followers. This would, as the verse says, show them the full extent of his love. Show them love to the uttermost, to the limit, to perfection. How greatly he loves us. So what's he do to show love for his disciples? Buy the best roast beef for their meal? Catch a heart on the wall with an arrow through it and the words, I love you? Book the local flute, harp, and tambourine band? What's going to be his big send-off to those he's closest to? Nothing that extravagant, but an unforgettable act that would speak volumes and stick with them the rest of their lives. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. You can see John, the author, building up anticipation here, emphasizing the majesty of Christ's power and person creating an epic tension that expands our consciousness into Jesus' eternal being and almightiness and godness. What follows next comes across as a real anticlimax. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What? Washing or Dirty, dusty, sandaled feet? grimy, But that was usually servants' work, not something suitable for the guest of honor. Apparently the basin and towel were right there, ready to be used, yet none of the disciples had lowered themselves to fill in for the missing servant staff. These were the same disciples who had a habit of arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest. Back many months before in Capernaum in Mark 9.33b, when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Again, earlier this very same night, they were celebrating the Passover together for the last time, Luke records in 22:24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus' simple action of washing their feet is speaking volumes, more than words could ever say, showing that love cares for the other's basic needs, even if it means humbling oneself in the process. Jesus is demonstrating love by the most menial act of service. Love doesn't shirk the dirty work. Jesus' action is a wordless rebuke to their pride and selfishness and rivalry and refusal to take a lower place. Verse 3 reminds us, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and would soon be returning to God. Yet with that frame of reference, the mighty eternal Son of God bound himself with a mere towel and got down on his knees to wash and wipe our unsightly, grubby, probably stinky, feet. What a parallel to the kenosis or emptying passage of Philippians 2.6 who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Love pours itself out for the other. John Walton, son of the founder of Walmart, used his wealth to champion K-12 educational reform in the United States. He served as a combat medic with the Green Berets in Vietnam, winning a Silver Star for Valor. Asked why he volunteered to serve thus, he said, I figured if you're going to do something, you should do it the best you can do. He died in a plane crash in 2005 at the age of 58, with a fortune estimated at $18.2 billion. But such great wealth never seemed to affect him. How long after a new charter school opened in San Diego, Walton made an unannounced visit, asking how he could be of service. Well, the school's founder didn't recognize him and told Walton that the bathrooms needed cleaning. Walton simply asked, where's the mop? The fourth wealthiest person in America then spent 25 minutes swabbing the floors, happy to help. Next section. Washing the worst and the willful. The context here is not just that Jesus' arrest and crucifixion are looming large in his consciousness. There's a very immediate factor present. Those gathered for this very special Last Supper include Jesus' betrayer. Verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. But Judas does not exit until verse 30. So Jesus' own betrayer, the man who would play a crucial part in handing his master over to the authorities for execution, is one of those whose feet Jesus washes. What must that have been like, to wash Judas' feet? What feelings must have been welling up in our Savior, struggling within him? How would you feel if you were doing this and it came to your enemy who had determined to kill you? Would you rather be giving him a knockout punch that would send him into the next county than wash his feet? But somehow Jesus exercised grace and composure to include even his enemy in this demonstration. Leviticus 19.18 commands, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It doesn't say only those neighbors you get along with, or Only those people who've never wronged you love your neighbor, whoever they are, however they may have treated you. Another person Jesus comes to in the washing line of the dirty dozen is Peter, headstrong, impulsive, outspoken Peter. Peter's issue is, first of all, he may be too proud or self-conscious to allow Jesus to wash his feet. Then when Christ pushes him on this, Peter swings the other way in allowing it, but wanting to go overboard while still dictating the terms on which he'd allowed. The interaction goes like this, John thirteen six to 10 He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Do we see ourselves reflected in Peter's willfulness? Does our ego get in the way of accepting all God has done for us? Is our pride resistant to receiving all that Jesus offers? We want to do it ourselves, so we have something to boast of. In our prayer requests, do we find ourselves dictating a do-it list to the Lord? We want answers to our prayers, but only on our terms. Thank you very much. Jesus tells us unless he washes us, we have no part with him. His Lordship demands our submission and cooperation. It seems Peter later matured with the Holy Spirit's help, for he would write to other leaders in the early church, 1 Peter 5, 3 and 5. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Next section, blessing in following the pattern. So the Lord Jesus completed the undesirable task of washing the feet of all twelve of his followers. When he was dressed again as usual, he drove home the point of his object lesson. He plays the authority card, rightly so, pointing out that if he, their Lord and teacher, wash their feet, verse 14, for you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Do we call him our Lord, our teacher? Then we need to do as he has done. It's that simple. It's not just imitation repeating his pattern in our own strength. He supplies the Holy Spirit to empower and equip us to carry it out. We can't do it in our own strength. We turn away from reaching out to our Judases. We lose patience with our Peters and throw up our hands, walking away in disgust and frustration. It's only in relinquishment, acknowledging to God we can't do it on our own, that we need His help and repentance that His Holy Spirit is released to guide us and. Strengthen us to do what's not humanly possible. He gives us his supply through the Spirit. He also gives us a new standard. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. One might object, that's not really new, that's as old as the hills. Because way back in Leviticus 19.18, we're told to love our neighbor. Read on and see to what extent Jesus' followers are commanded to love one another. Thirteen thirty-four. For a new command I give you: Love one another, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What's so new about the new command? The standard is to love as He has loved us. Oh my. He died on the cross to save sinners. That's asking a lot. That seems like it's asking too much to lay our lives down for the Judases and Peters and the Pharisees and the hypocrites and the thief who's ridiculing us to the very end. So we need to rely on the love the Father has for us. John 4.15 for it. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. He sets the standard, an example for us to imitate, a pattern for us to follow. Sometimes it seems like an impossible standard. But he also gives us the supply, his Holy Spirit, God living in us so we know and rely on, fall back on, Draw strength from the love God has for us. About this love, one another thing. Robertson comments on verse 35 referring to Jerome, the ancient Catholic priest and theologian who died in the year 420. Jerome says that in his extreme old age, John repeated often this command of Jesus and justified it because it is the Lord's commandment. And if it be fulfilled, it is enough. Jesus said if we loved one another, all people would know by that we are his disciples. Surveying the church landscape today with so many denominations and splinter groups and offshoots and variances, yes, if it be fulfilled, it is enough. Others around us might start saying, like non-believers said of the early church, see how these Christians love one another. Ah, section! What a great man you are. Love doesn't shirk the dirty work. Love gets down off its pedestal and pitches in to meet the deepest need of the other person with the gifts and calling one has, as the Lord directs. We don't presume to dictate the terms to God. We're also not indispensable. We follow His leading. One can't be full of pride and still be a servant leader. Those in high political office are particularly tempted to become proud and think overly much of themselves. Maybe alongside the self-emptying attitude of Jesus, we should have the humility recommended to Harry Truman. When he was thrust into the presidency at the death of Franklin D. Roosevelt, Sam Rayburn gave him some fatherly advice. From here on out, you're going to have lots of people around you. I'll try to put a wall around you and cut you off from any ideas but theirs. They'll tell you what a great man you are, Harry. And he continued, but you and I both know you ain't. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Thank you for the humility he showed, the servant attitude, the grace to uh, act in a loving way even toward those who would betray him those who objected to him. Lord, grant us that same grace and put a love within us so that we can be empowered to reach out to those who you want to minister to through us and draw to yourself. Uh, Thank you for loving us, uh, that you, Jesus, showed us the full extent of your love by going to the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.